What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. In 2022, there were only 15 days when police did not shoot and kill someone in the United States. That's according to a Washington Post database. Also, according to the Washington Post, this year, law enforcement has murdered 555 people. That is an increase of 26 since our last roundup. And we don't even know most of their names. There were no marches, rallies, rebellions, or hashtags for them. Most of their families grieved in silence and solitude. It is critical to understand that police murders are just the tip of an egregious iceberg of transgressions against our people. Law enforcement serves as a militarized occupying army in our communities and neighborhoods. They racially profile, sexually assault, and wrongfully incarcerate our folks. If we don't know what's happening, then we can't fight back. We can't adequately organize a response. So every week on Law and Disorder, we kick off our Thursdays with a roundup of news related to state violence. We hope this segment serves to expose, agitate, and build. This is the State Terror Roundup for the week of July 31st, 2023. On July 26th, in the middle of a sunny afternoon, the San Francisco Police Department shot and killed Ryan Peanut Bluford, a father of three. The incident was caught on video and numerous people from the crowd can be heard pleading with the police to not kill him. It appears the incident began when Bluford saw law enforcement preparing to arrest a teenager and intervened. Having been formally incarcerated himself, Bluford had difficulty being in close proximity to police. While not confirmed, it is also possible that Bluford was in the middle of a mental health crisis as he had been grieving the sudden loss of his mother, who had transitioned just months before. We covered this story on Monday with Bluford's first cousin, L'Oreal, but I'm including it in the roundup because I have more to say. Ryan Bluford did in fact have a criminal record and his crime is something that many of us would struggle with. That said, the incident was decades ago. He served his time and there is no way that law enforcement knew about his record when they murdered him. Far too often we say that people deserve execution by cop because they did something we take offense with years before. In theory, we are supposed to live in a country where people are supposed to have due process of the law. That means that police are not supposed to be judged jury and executioner, especially decades after the fact. No one, not Ryan, not anyone, deserves to be executed by the state. And what's more, San Franciscans should brace themselves for more of these tragedies. With the dismissal of all three police murder cases brought by former San Francisco District Attorney Chester Boudin, by now District Attorney Brooke Jenkins, she has effectively told the SFPD and their association that they are free to beat, rape, and kill with impunity. My spotty sense tells me there are dark days ahead for black, brown, and poor folks in San Francisco. Rise in power, Ryan. Organizers with Atlanta Stop Cop City Movement are in the midst of a referendum effort that would put the fate of the city's $90 million police training facility up for a vote this November. Supporters have characterized the referendum initiative as an attempt to preserve the democratic process, giving Atlanta residents the final say on whether or not the controversial project should proceed. But with tens of thousands of signatures already gathered, according to the campaign, city and state leaders appear intent on preventing their question from ever reaching the ballot. Since organizers announced the referendum in June, the city of Atlanta officials have worked to stall the effort and undermine the signature collection process. Lawyers for the city and the state of Georgia have argued the referendum is illegitimate. Some see this opposition as part of a broader, two-year-long trend of anti-democratic interference against Stop Cop City movement. 
Opponents of Cop City launched a referendum campaign just a day after the Atlantic City Council approved a new budget for the complex. The 11-4 vote followed more than 15 hours of public comment, which featured testimony from around 400 residents who overwhelmingly opposed the facility. Critics raised a variety of concerns with the project, with many speaking out about the dangers of an increasingly militarized police force and the environmental harms of plans to raise at least 85 acres of forest land in a low-income, predominantly black neighborhood of unincorporated DeKalb County. Despite the community outcry, city council members approved a budget significantly higher than previous estimates, raising the price tag of public funding from $30 million to $67 million, with the additional $37 million coming in the form of lease payments to be paid out by the city of Atlanta over the next 30 years. Cop City is a private public funding project that will be bankrolled by the Atlanta Police Foundation, and corporate donors are providing an additional $60 million in funding. Under Atlanta's referendum process, campaigns have 60 days to collect signatures from at least 15% of the city's registered voters, or around 75,000 people. Petition signers must have been registered to vote in Atlanta in 2021, and a witness who is also an Atlanta resident must be present for the signing. These requirements impose a relatively steep burden on ballot initiatives in Atlanta. Just under 80,000 people voted in the city's most recent mayoral election, a runoff in November 2021. For comparison, our state, California, requires referendums to collect signatures equivalent to 5% of all votes cast at the last gubernatorial election, typically only around 2 or 3% of all registered voters. Organizers in Atlanta have so far gathered over 30,000 petitions. The Vote to Stop Cop City Coalition reported on Monday. An initial August 14th deadline for signatures has been extended until late September. Source, Asia Arnold, for the appeal. Remember when the FBI sent a white convicted felon to infiltrate the Black Lives Matter movement in Colorado? Well, the ACLU of Colorado has taken the feds to court, alleging that federal and local law enforcement officials abused their powers when they targeted left-wing activists in the summer of 2020. Specifically, the lawsuit accuses the G-Men, the Colorado Springs Department, and local police officers of overstepping their authority in infiltrating, surveilling, and requesting search warrants aimed at Colorado Springs activists. The infiltration was revealed in February by The Intercept and the podcast series Alphabet Boys, which we featured on this program. In a separate federal case in Denver, the Justice Department last week did not deny that the government's initial investigation of racial justice activists was prompted by, get this, speech. You know that thing? that free thing that we're supposed to be able to do here. That filing, the government's first public response to revelations that the FBI infiltrated the racial justice movement in Denver using a violent felon as a paid informant, claimed that the quote-unquote violent nature of the activist statements, quote, made them a legitimate subject of investigation, end quote. The two cases stem from the same source. During the summer of 2020, the FBI secretly hired an informant, Michael Mickey Windecker, to infiltrate the racial justice movement in Denver. While being paid by the FBI, Windecker accused movement leaders of being informants themselves, encouraged violence at protests, and tried unsuccessfully to entrap two black activists in a plot to assassinate the state's attorney general. When we reported this story on Law and Disorder, the point I wanted to make then, and that is worthy of remaking now, is that it may be moving with another name and a new face, but Cointelpro is alive, well, and active in our movements today. There is no length, no matter how vile, underhanded, or illegal, that the state will not go to in order to crush our movements, target our leaders, and incarcerate our fight for liberation. Take heed, keep your head on a swivel, and take yourself at least half as seriously as they take you. Anywho... 
The FBI in its report stated Windecker had come forward voluntarily out of some sort of duty to protect the United States, but the Bureau's documented knowledge of Windecker complicated that claim. The FBI was aware that Windecker had prior arrests in at least four states and had been convicted of misdemeanor sexual assault and felony menacing with a weapon. The FBI also knew that Windecker had a long history of working the system as an informant, going back as far as two decades earlier when he'd been a jailhouse snitch in a murder-for-hire case. Nevertheless, the FBI paid Windecker more than $20,000 for his work during the summer of 2020. The FBI's investigation in Colorado is the first documented case of federal agents infiltrating the racial justice movement during the summer of 2020, albeit I'll bet it's not going to be the last. Although the Justice Department and the FBI have said little about it, the probe has garnered attention on Capitol Hill. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon called it a clear abuse of authority. Republican Representative Dan Bishop of North Carolina quipped, this is what the FBI does. Republican Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio submitted the Intercept's article about the FBI activity in Denver into evidence in his select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Wow, Jim Jordan. That's a little bit surprising. Source, Trevor Aronson, The Intercept. Get cops out of traffic, get cops out of traffic, get cops out of traffic. Why, Cat? do you ask? Because they do little to nothing for public safety and they are far too often deadly encounters for black folks. Case in point, a Minnesota state trooper shot and killed black motorist early Monday morning after he fled a routine traffic stop. Family members identified him as 33-year-old Ricky Cobb II. 33 years old, y'all. The state patrol said the shooting was captured on body camera and squad car dash camera footage and promised to release it soon. We'll not hold our breath. Cobb is the latest black motorist killed by law enforcement in the Twin Cities following high-profile incidents dating back several years that drew intense protests, including the shooting deaths of Philando Castile in Falcon Heights and Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center. And there was, of course, George Floyd. On Monday night, more than 100 people gathered with Cobb's family and friends to remember him with a group prayer. Daniel Pickett, the mother of Cobb's two older boys, says she thinks his race contributed to police shooting him and that she saw him being racially profiled over the years. She said, quote, We're just leaving fatherless kids out here unnecessarily. These people are fathers. Their children need them, too. She said Cobb loved his kids more than anything in life. And his sister, Octavia Ruffin, wrote, Watch over my brother. Source, Tim Harlow, Liz Sawyer, Paul Wash, and Lewis Krause, the Star Tribune. A black man, Jarrell Garris, 37, was shot by the police on July 3rd in New Rochelle after a report of theft. And when I say theft, I mean he was accused of eating a few grapes and a banana and leaving without paying for them. The New Rochelle Police Department said Mr. Garris was shot when he tried to grab a gun from an officer's holster. It released body camera footage that shows the events leading up to the shooting, but cuts off before it takes place. Imagine that. I guess we should just take their word for it. The police department said that the body camera video it released was truncated out of respect for Mr. Garris's family, but the family is leading a chorus of calls from the community demanding the release of the remaining footage. Mr. Garris died in a hospital a week later. Mr. Garris was in town because he planned to pick up his 11-year-old son from the boy's mother's house and bring him home for the summer. Remember the comment in the story I just read? We just leave him fatherless children all over this country for no damn reason. So, what exactly happened? Well, just before 4.30 p.m. on July 3rd, someone who worked at the grocery store 
someone should find out who that someone is and let that someone know that we don't call the police on black people. But anyway, someone who works at the grocery store, New Rochelle Farms, called the police and said a man had stolen some fruit. <laughs> I'm sorry, his death is not funny, but it just blows my mind that someone would actually pick up the phone and call the police about some fruit. A detective arrives as Mr. Garris is crossing the street, and when one of the other officers says that the grocery store plans to press charges, he tells Mr. Garris that he is under arrest. What? Mr. Garris asks as the detective begins to handcuff him. Mr. Garris becomes visibly distressed. Being arrested is a distressing event, and the video shows him and the officers beginning to struggle. At one point, one of the two officers who arrived first is heard saying, Stop, Steve. The detective shouts, he's got a gun, and Mr. Garris extends his arm, but it's difficult to determine what he is reaching for. Then the video ends. The police have not said that a gun was found on the scene, and Mr. Garris's father has said he was unarmed. During a city council meeting on Tuesday, community members expressed outrage over the shooting. Dan Miller, a doctor who lives in New Rochelle, said during the meeting that he frequently samples produce at grocery stores. And, quote, no one accosts me in the street, no one threatens my life, and nobody shoots me. I think we know why, Mr. Miller said, who was white. Mr. Fowler, who, like his son, grew up in New Rochelle, said Mr. Garris had been diagnosed with schizophrenia but had been taking medication with few issues. He said his son had been doing well in recent years and that he had a full-time job as a caretaker for older people and lived with a girlfriend. He said certain officers knew of his son's diagnosis because he had called the department in the past to ask officers to check on him. He questioned why responding officers didn't request help from mental health services on July 3rd. A question that we continue to ask every week in cities across this country. Mr. Garris's funeral was held this past Saturday. Source, Aaron Nolan, New York Times. On July 3rd, 2023, unarmed Juan Diego Bernal Uriar was shot and killed by an Alameda County Sheriff's deputy and a California Highway Patrol officer as he was trying to get home after enjoying watching fireworks with friends for the holiday. Juan Diego was an avid member of the Bay Area bike club scene and a loyal friend to all. He was a hard worker, and the day of his death, he finished a 12-hour shift at the local 99-cent store. The family is still fighting for the footage of the incident and the names of the officers involved. They continue to fight for transparency and answers. You can join the family and community alongside the Hayward and Oakland Bike Clubs on Saturday, August 5th at 2 o'clock p.m. at Heritage Plaza as they ride out for justice for Juan Diego and end the ride with a vigil and balloon release with his family and friends. The ride out will be in cars, dirt bikes, or bikes through all of the mission and stop where Juan was murdered. They will be there all day with food and making noise for justice. They're asking community to bring out posters, shirts, balloons, and candles. This has been the State Terror Roundup for the week of July 31st, 2023. State Terror Roundup soundtrack provided by Coffee Brown, an Oakland musician, singer, and songwriter who has been a force in the Bay Area's hip-hop and soul scene since the early 1990s. You can check her out at kofybrown.com, and her website and socials are linked from our site at kpfa.org. A shout-out to my producer, Jesse Strauss, for helping me curate the content for this segment. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.